0: The second psalm, why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That has background to our sermon text this morning, Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. The Galilean ministry of Jesus is in full swing and we read these words in verse 7 and beyond. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. The arrangement of the New Testament books in the Bible open before you now, I hope, suggests how important it was to the early church that before anything else you and I come to know the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ his person and work are key to understanding the rapid expansion of the early church recorded in the book of acts his person and work are foundational for understanding the doctrinal and ethical imperatives of the epistles And you can be sure we're going to stumble over the book of Revelation and its meaning unless we have a firm grasp of who Jesus is and what he's already accomplished in history. So the New Testament opens with these four eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is and what he's done. And of course these two matters, his being and his doing, his person and his work, they help explain each other. His being, God in the flesh, God with us, is the only rational way we can account for all these eyewitness verified deeds. And his deeds bear witness outwardly of the otherwise unknown, unknowable, inward matter of who he is. Outwardly, he appeared to be a man just like any other man. A Jew? A carpenter? A rabbi? His deeds demonstrate that he is all that, completely and yet infinitely more. Never a man spoke as this man, they said of him, as he preached the kingdom of God. Never a man spoke as this man, because he spoke with absolute authority on that subject, the kingdom. But it was his deeds that set their messianic hopes on fire, he spoke with authority, and then he went on to seal that authority with the cleansing of lepers, the casting out of demons, the healing of every manner of sickness, and the raising of the certifiably dead, all of which, of course, are outside the capability of mere mortal men. Now already his disciples had begun talking this through, hadn't they? If the matter was never raised among them earlier, it certainly was when with a word of command he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Who then is this, they said? Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Who then is this? And they weren't alone in their wondering. They knew him pretty well, or at least they thought they did. After all, they were with him every day. Others, hundreds or likely thousands of people by now, knew him not nearly as well. But they knew him well enough to be convinced this is no mere rabbi, this is no mere man. And knowing him not at all, Herod Antipas, then Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Herod sat in his palace hearing these reports coming in and wondering, who is this about whom I hear such things? Clearly this Jesus of Nazareth isn't some flash in the pan. He's not a a random blip appearing once and then disappearing from Herod's political radar screen. He's actually become the focal point, the ringleader of a growing movement here in my jurisdiction of Galilee. And it is growing. If this gospel of God's kingdom didn't sink into Herod's consciousness back when it was just John the Baptist preaching the kingdom, if it didn't then alarm him when it was just Jesus preaching the kingdom, all of a sudden, He's hearing that the kingdom of God is being preached by teams of young Jewish men and mere boys in every town and village of his jurisdiction. The kingdom of God's being preached by all these people. Who then is this about whom I hear such things? Now, whenever we look seriously into a matter like this, the goal ought to be objectivity, shouldn't it? The objective truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. That's what I'm after. Whenever I turn on the radio news, I don't care what some celebrity has been spotted wearing or saying or thinking or feeling. I don't especially care to hear someone else airing his political opinions. When I tune in, I want to know what's really and truly going on in the world. The important things. Things that are actually going to impact my life in some way. Even the best of human opinions are cheap. I want facts. I want facts. But it is hard to separate the subjective from the objective, isn't it? It's hard to separate the reporter from the news being reported. Because everyone has a slant on things, and of course I do too. It's called a world view. Well, Herod's been running all this incoming news and commentary about Jesus through the subjective personal filters of his own thought processes, his own world view. Clearly, this rabbi from Nazareth isn't just going to disappear on his own. He's not self-destructing like so many other alleged messiahs before him. He's not self-destructing, and he's not fading away. If I could afford to ignore him before, clearly I can't now. Not with him sending out all these other preachers. So who is he? And Herod's at a disadvantage at several levels. First, he has no first-hand knowledge of Jesus. He never saw him, never heard him. And then, too, there's so much public controversy about him. There are so many diverse opinions. Some people, acquainted with the Old Testament prophets, say that Elijah's returned. According to the promise of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, says the Lord, before the great and awesome day of the Lord come. After all, according to the scriptures, Elijah never died. Did he? Read the second book of Kings. Elijah never died. The Lord took Elijah, still living, still breathing, directly to heaven in a whirlwind, and clearly, according to this first view, clearly, he's back. Others maintained that no, Jeremiah, or one of the other Old Testament prophets, had returned from the dead. And that's what accounts for the sudden return of all these miracles we haven't seen in hundreds and hundreds of years. And still others filled, with, filled the gaping holes in their knowledge with the completely superstitious view that John the Baptist, who had been recently beheaded in prison on orders of Herod, this Herod, John had been raised from the dead. Which, to be completely candid, was probably the silliest of all the public opinions expressed, because, of course, Jesus was actively engaged in public ministry for the better part of a year before, Jesus, uh, before John had even been arrested. But silly or not, those were the three main schools of thought concerning the person and work of Jesus. You see them surface from time to time in the Gospels. Most memorably, probably, in Matthew 16, verses 13 and 14, where in the district of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus himself poses that question to his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, in the absence of hard factual knowledge, everyone has an opinion. And in his reckless disregard for the truth, the objective truth, Herod too had an opinion. The simple, straightforward question who then is this? When you run it through the filter of a conscience that is crimson with the blood of an innocent man, the question actually becomes an indictment. Herod had had John murdered in his prison cell. In the dark of the night, without due process of law, at the request of a young dancing girl who pleased him at a party and the whim of her mom. Herod was asking the question and his guilty conscience answered him ultimately in four ways. Four ways. His guilty conscience answered him first of all with a deep perplexity. A deep perplexity. His Deep personal guilt in the matter, of John's murder, confused him and blinded him and robbed him of the ability to see things as clearly as other people saw them. And it wasn't a momentary perplexity he was suffering either. He didn't soon get over this perplexity. The tense of the verb the Holy Spirit uses here in verse 7 indicates that Herod was puzzling and puzzling over this question for a long time. His guilty conscience had run him off the road of rational thought into a muddy ditch of superstitious nonsense. In that deep ditch of guilt, he sat and spun his wheels while the rest of the world whizzed on by him on the free, well-traveled road of rational thought. Herod was there no longer. His guilty conscience answered Herod secondly by putting him into a desperate panic. A desperate panic. This is maybe less clear here in Luke than it is in the parallel passages of Matthew and Mark. Here in verse 9, Herod seems almost to dismiss the possibility that Christ is John the Baptist risen from the dead. After all, Herod said, John I beheaded. Now normally that would cross John off the list of available candidates, wouldn't it? It would, except for a man who's already way in over his head with personal guilt. It's driving Herod into a superstitious panic. It's actually beginning to drive him mad. And the reckless abuse of power will very often do that to people. Sometimes very suddenly, as in the case of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, More often it takes a little longer. Matthew's account of Herod's answer concerning Jesus' identity is unmistakable. It's the answer of guilt. You'll find it in Matthew 14, 1 and 2. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And Mark's parallel account in his gospel, chapter 6, verse 16, is just as clear. But when Herod heard of it, that is, heard of Jesus' fame, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He's in a desperate panic convinced apparently that John's come back from the grave to avenge his own murder. So here he is, here Herod is, in this dark swamp where the rivers of deep perplexity and desperate panic meet and mingle. Strangely and counterintuitively, a third answer of Herod's guilty conscience surfaces in this double preoccupation with Jesus, a double preoccupation with him. He fears him and yet he is drawn to him much as a criminal is drawn back to the scene of the crime or as a moth to the flame. Consider again the final sentence of verse 9 and he sought to see him Friends, let's give thanks to God that by grace he's called us and given us to a life of walking in the light of a reasonable faith. A reasonable faith. But even if you were still the sin-darkened slave of a completely irrational superstition, would you be seeking to see with your own eyes the avenging zombie of the innocent man you yourself brutally murdered? Would you? Neither would I. And so I looked into this. (coughs) I looked into this, and it seems to me there were two reasons Herod was so preoccupied with seeing Jesus. First, he wanted very much to settle his irrational fear. He wanted to convince himself that his own worst fears aren't really True. I need to set my eyes on this man to be sure this isn't the one that I'm afraid he is. Then too he wanted to satisfy an idle curiosity. Settle his irrational fear, but also satisfy an idle curiosity. The reports of this man, Jesus, are positively off the chart. Wonderful a magician, a wonder worker. Maybe he can be persuaded to entertain me, too, once I find out he's not the man I'm afraid he is. The day was still far off when the two finally met, but that day was coming. In Luke 23, verses 6 to 11, we find the circumstances of their first and only meeting on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. When Pilate heard this, that is, heard that Jesus stirring up the people had begun in Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. In this way, Herod's long double preoccupation with seeing Jesus ended. Clearly, Jesus isn't John the Baptist after all. And equally clear is the fact that Jesus doesn't see himself as a man sent to coddle and entertain me. Thus answers the guilty conscience of Herod concerning the person and work of Jesus, with deep perplexity, desperate panic, a double preoccupation, and one thing more, a guilty conscience always answers one with much more than mere feelings, much more than an emotional response. The confusion, fear, and preoccupation with one's own guilt may indeed complicate and hinder your ability to see clearly, but the main point is this. A guilty conscience brings us to a decision point, a decision point. What shall I do with my guilt? We've just seen how Herod dealt with his. Although Herod knew God, just as all men know him through the things that are made, and though he knew the righteousness of God through the preaching of John, And though he knew in a very specific and painful way his own true, personal, actual guilt as John wagged his finger in his face from the day of his divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife. Knowing all these things, still Herod would not submit himself to God's law. Would not turn. Would not repent. And the day wasn't far off when the long-suffering patience of God toward Herod came to an end. You can read of it in Acts 12, 20-23, that appointed day when he put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered his oration, accepted the accolades of men, and did not give God the glory. And Luke writes, He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Of course, you and I know he'd been steadily eaten away by guilt for years. If we're able to see it, guilt always presents us with a decision point. And I don't mean mere feelings of guilt, which may be nothing more than the product of someone's emotional manipulation. Not guilt feelings, I mean actual guilt that follows actual transgression. Herod's actual guilt killed him. Judas Iscariot's actual guilt would soon kill him. Guilt kills. And it'll kill us too if the wages of sin is death. What then is the answer? Proverbs 28.13 pulls us out of that ditch in which we spin our superstitious wheels. It says, "...whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy." Having in this way obtained mercy, having thus been put again on the road of rational godly thought, First John 1, 7-9, then sends us down the right path. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guilt places us at a decision point. Shall I confess and forsake my sins or hide them and die? Confession of sin puts us on the road of compassion and cleansing. It puts us on the road that actually takes us somewhere, out of our fears, out of our anxieties, out of our perplexities and panic and preoccupations. It's the road that takes us home. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.